0: I'm Kate King.
1: And I'm Nelis Vanderberg. We're colleagues and executive leaders in a global nonprofit.
0: Leading in conversation is our passion. We're excited about the transformative power of free-flowing conversations that generate new insights and open up possibilities for change.
1: As we've begun to experiment with conversational leadership and seen it transform how we work in our organization, we've also found that it resonates with other leaders and they want to know more.
0: This podcast is our response to that growing interest. Together and with guests, we want to explore how conversational leadership works on a daily basis in the workplace.
1: I'm really pleased to introduce a guest into our podcast, Reinhold Titus. He has agreed to walk with us through his experience in his organizational context around conversational leadership and doing that cross-culturally. So, Reinhold, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Thanks so much,
2: Nielas and Kate, for having me. I'm looking forward to the next few minutes together. My name is Reinhold Titus. I am from Namibia. That's my primary passport country. I grew up in a cross-cultural context in Namibia, mostly a few of my childhood years in South Africa. My first career was in the medical field, in radiology, and then left and joined international NGO and has been involved in that for over 20 years now. Lived in six different countries. Actually, my family and I currently living in Germany, so this is the sixth country that we're living in. Been involved with NGO work in leadership and strategy and leadership development, but also lived in South Africa for just over 10 years. And during that time ran an intercultural consultancy. So working with profit and nonprofit sector around the whole issue of cultural intelligence, diversity and inclusion, coaching expats who were relocating around the world. And so some of the multinational companies would bring me in to coach them just as they were navigating their own sense of identity and transitions and leading in a very different context and so forth but yeah currently living in Germany involved in an organization where I am responsible for our strategy alignment and then also looking at what we just term inclusion but the whole diversity and inclusion within the organization.
1: Yeah we're looking forward to hearing from that incredibly rich background.
0: Yes and I must add that Reinhold and I met in England during our master's studies we both encountered conversational leadership there And uh, we're very interested in each other's research topics, so stayed in touch. And we recently invited Reinhold to speak at a leaders event on his research into the inclusion of majority world staff into Western founded organizations. And for those of you who've listened to episode four, you might've picked up that the group there was referring to the outsider who came and spoke, and that was Reinhold. (laughs)
2: I still have to listen to that, Kate. (laughs) You
0: should listen to that episode. Yeah, they're very complimentary about your input into our time together. But Reinhold's also interested in conversational approaches to change and the intersection of that with inclusion and belonging. So I'm really looking forward to what he has to say
2: today.
1: Yes, I am too. Let's start off. Kate just said you're interested in conversational leadership as well. What interests you there?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think there were three things for me that triggered my interest around conversational leadership. One was just as I looked at the world, and and of course, for me personally, faith is an integral aspect of my life. But even as I look at it from a faith perspective, I realized that conversations have so much potential in terms of helping us cross divides, overcome differences, political, whatever it might be. If we can get to healthy places of conversations, honest, vulnerable conversations, It has a potential for bringing so much healing and change and and, and all of that. So that was certainly an aspect that interested me, but also from a cultural perspective. I'm an African, and many of our cultures are oral cultures. Generally, knowledge is transferred, sense is made in conversation rather than reading a book and sitting there by myself and reflecting and then writing another chapter about what I think. It's in the conversation that we sense what's happening, that we connect relationally with one another at a heart, human, fundamental needs level. And then just what the future holds and and sensing that together. In fact, uh, in my father's language, which is Kosa and Zulu, we have a word that we call indaba, And Indaba is really a time and a space where people come together to talk together as a community or even as representatives of a community to solve issues or find ways forward and strengthen community. It just resonated with me from where I come from culturally in the world.
0: That's very much the case in other parts of the world as well, not just Africa, isn't it? I experienced that in Papua New Guinea. Everything is done through conversation, through storying, as they call it. Let's sit down and story. Yeah. And for yeah. me, coming from the West, when we were sitting by the fire and someone first said story, I was like, do I have to tell a story? You know, thinking of fictitious, child- no, it's just that, that conversational, let's just sit here and talk things out. Yeah, I love that about the culture there.
1: That's interesting because often I hear that conversational leadership is difficult in a non-Western context because it assumes a sort of egalitarian way of approaching things. You're saying the opposite. Uh, You're saying, actually, oral cultures are incredibly well suited for conversational leadership. Well, now you're
2: talking about conversations and you're bringing leadership into, and those are two that we then bring together in terms of conversations and leadership. And of course, leadership is culturally constructed, what leadership looks like in context. Again, this is where I can critique some of our literature a little bit, but often when we read books about leadership, there's a prescribed way about how leadership works and what leadership looks like and all of that. But Absolutely. no, it comes out of a particular cultural paradigm that define leadership and then we try and and critically exported around the world and say this is the way you should lead and so on there are equally legitimate perhaps different but equally legitimate ways of leading in different contexts and so when you put that together yes there's often a bit more hierarchical ways of leadership in some of the majority world cultures but you also have leaders who perhaps in a different way will engage in conversation and of course For many of us from that part of the world, Nelson Mandela would be an amazing example of an African leader who employed conversational styles of leadership and yet understood the hierarchical issues. There is, of course, the cultural element to that and hierarchy that needs to be navigated. But there are many leaders who are employing this and and just finding the culturally appropriate ways of doing it. So again, even with conversational leadership that we don't try and uncritically export that to the rest of the world and say, this is the way we should be done, is to recognize what is in the culture, leverage that which is already in the culture that can actually help you to get there, but also be aware of those elements that may not be the same as where people who come from the West, would how they would do things. For me, in a sense, again, you, you cannot do this well in a global multicultural context without some level of cultural intelligence or savvy to be able to do this well in different contexts or with diverse groups.
1: Yeah, and I hope that this podcast will be sort of an encouragement for that research, for that exploration, and actually the practice of leadership cross-culturally and conversational leadership, bringing that together. That would be fascinating, and I'm hoping for more of that. You said there's three things that interested you. I've heard two, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So the third one for
2: me would be the opportunity that it presents to us to get input from the outside of the hierarchical spaces where if you just had a certain group of people, uh, just what it unleashes, you know, in terms of creativity, innovation engagement that it creates when people are involved in that process so it's just what it unleashes is something that triggered me because I've seen it whenever we employ it again in culturally relevant ways but it energizes people and so for me that was the third one that inspires me towards exploring this that wisdom exists throughout our organizations insights perspectives different ways of doing things understanding of context exist in places in our organizations that leadership have no idea of or no access to and so how do we tap into that I can give you examples of just speaking to my teenage goddaughter many years ago and asking her a question and she gave me an answer that I would never have thought about as an adult And and it sort of guided my parenting just getting wisdom from a 11 year old at the time so just wisdom that exists within the organization that we often do not tap into
0: absolutely and we've discussed that in previous episodes that actually when we stick to a small group of leaders with just one perspective and one set of experiences we limit ourselves and we limit the potential for change as well and you need diversity in order to be able to discern the way forward often as a leader because you don't have the perspective that others have so yeah that resonated with me as well that the wisdom of all is is really needed
1: Just yesterday, I was in a conversation where I was confronted again with the fact that we as leaders tend to look at just one layer of the organization, the 100 people that we always go to. It is quite a challenge to try to really reach well beyond that. You're right, conversation leadership opens those kind of avenues if we employ it well.
0: Reinhold, would you share a little bit about what are your experiences using conversational leadership in your organizational context, in your NGO?
2: Yeah, and again, context is important and I'm glad we're using that word because it would look differently in different contexts. I wouldn't say we are there, not by any means at all. And in fact, what is there? (laughs) It always depends. I've studied strategic management before, and I've been involved in strategic management. And when I took on this particular role within the organization, there was a level of complexity there that was just beyond anything that I'd experienced before. We have people from, in the wider organization, more than a hundred different countries in one of the units that we run over 60 different countries. So that level of diversity, and that's just nationalities. You're not even talking about the languages and the ethnicities and the the life experiences that everybody brings with them. So we were dealing with a very diverse staff. We're engaging with people in national and regional contexts who are very, very different from each other. And so our organizational strategy needs to be set up in such a way that we have that flexibility and not just this is the five-year plan and this is how we're going to work. And then, of course, the awareness of the fast and continuous changes in the world. And of course, COVID over the last two years, (laughs) that just exponentially enhanced that sense of the VUCA world that we often talk about, that we live in. I just realized even my skill set was not suited for what I needed to do. And so what do I do? Do I just go back to the toolbox I have and use the tools I have, even though the job requires different tools? Because that's what I know. And quite frankly, that's what people expect. That's what makes people feel comfortable as well as the traditional change management approaches. When I got introduced to this, and I think what was helpful is it takes a lot of self-work for a leader because it takes you into a lot of uncertainty, insecurity, questioning, opening yourself up for questioning because the traditional change management leaders come and stand up. Advisors would come and stand in front of you and say, okay, this is how we're going to do things. Now this will say, we don't know. I don't know. We need to sense this together. Well, what are we paying you for if you come and tell us you don't know? (laughs) I think it took a lot of self-work for me to be comfortable with what was required of me. Comfortable with my, I don't know. And it's okay if people know, I don't know. That sense of humility and embrace of my own insecurities and all of that. So I think that was one of the biggest things that I needed to work through is to be comfortable with this. I remember one of our earlier conversations, I wanted to get a much wider part of engagement, much wider groups and people involved. And, but as I was sensing the organization, I realized perhaps I was trying to push for too much too soon even if I could just get a sector or group of the organization together, it would be more than what we've ever done before. And then even thinking about that group that we get together, can we intentionally work diversity into that, instead of, as you said, we go to the 100 people that we always go to, is no, who are the other voices out there that would not automatically end up on that list of 100 people? And how do we get them into the conversation?
1: You say that you realized you needed to start with a subsection of the organization because biting off everything at the same time was too much. Can you say a bit more of that? Is it like an experiment or is that something that you see as gradually expanding outward? How does that work from your perspective?
2: I think it it comes back to leadership again. What I realized that will provide the greatest leverage is not for me to try and push that we do this throughout the organization but to take leaders on a journey, to help them see the value of it, because they lead in spaces that I will never get to, to help them see the value, to help give them some kind of language and tools on how to do that. And some leaders have caught onto this more so than others, particularly one of our leaders I've just found incredibly encouraging to see as he started working with me, and there were even a period during the COVID time in lockdown that I couldn't travel to get to a significant group of our people, and he traveled. And we talked about it beforehand, how to engage, and then hearing him afterwards talking about how he facilitated and constantly just using the conversational language that he used. And uh, even a few days ago, we had a conversation, and we, it just goes back again to the conversational way of engaging and leading and so for me that was a win that uh, some of the leaders really caught on to it and then and, and start doing that with wherever they found themselves
0: yeah and that was very much something we were trying to do with the event a couple of weeks ago that you joined us that is pass on the vision for using a conversational approach in the organization and i do think that people got that in a new way from having spent a couple of days working with a different approach to how to do a meeting for example but also to continue the conversation after they leave with others and use a conversational approach with their staff one question I have is that I guess you like us have globally scattered staff and you can't possibly be with everyone all at once you can't gather everyone into one room and I envy people who work in organizations where everyone's in the same building or on the same site or maybe they have three sites (laughs) they think that's difficult we have you know over 4,000 staff scattered around the world and we can never get everyone in one room or even on one Zoom call. So I'm interested to hear how other people engage and create these conversations, whether virtually or by traveling
2: around. I think it's about leaders and taking leaders on a journey and equipping them to do that. And they need to discern their own context as well, you know, because the global context is also different from what people experience in regions or on a national level. One of the things that I realized as I reflected back on those earlier days and and even that int- initial intervention, debriefing the intervention, reflecting on the intervention myself and also with others. And you always ask yourself, how could you have done this better? And one of the things that I realized was I could have given people who were coming to this for the first time because there was a quite a bit of tension because people didn't know what to expect. It wasn't the normal way of doing things. And sometimes the tension is good because it brings out things. And I later on came across just a few short articles that that describes this a little bit more. And I realized even if I had access to that and just had given that to them beforehand to start framing what conversational leadership, conversational organizations are about, that may have helped a little bit. When we debriefed afterwards, people then said, okay, I understand now to a degree. And then even the ones that I spoke to, they still pushed back and had questions. I then sent them these articles. And then we had conversations again, and they said, okay, now some of these things make sense to me. I realized leadership and some of the equipping resources, language that we give to leaders as they do this is critical for them and make sure that it actually goes throughout the organization. It's
0: very much a process, a journey of learning, of adjusting to seeing things differently.
1: I find it fascinating what you're saying, Reinald, that it's, it's got to be done sort of in dialogue with people with whom you actually have contact you can't just mandate this across the organization from a distance it requires a sense of proximity and that's of course immediately the challenge because the topics you're dealing with of inclusion and diversity these are deeply uh, personal topics that you can't just mandate can you share some of your practical stories how that worked in your organization
2: at the moment, I'd say a lot of that is revolves around interventions. For me, the whole diversity is important, is who do we have in the room, even looking at it from a hierarchical point of view, to make sure that it's not just your executive or middle-level leaders, that actually I'm inviting some of the people who just joined a few months ago, younger people, into this conversation. Even with this intervention, one of the key things that we will be working on is leadership leadership styles, how do we see leadership, just the whole transactional versus relational leadership. And again, if you grow in terms of relational leadership, then it opens up spaces for conversation. Then you do this more, more and more. So for me, a a big part of that is just looking at how we model this, but then also intentionally with our leadership development to help expand the understanding of what leadership is and how to make sense as leaders and how to navigate things as leaders. So right now it's around these interventions, And then, and trusting, we're always talking about capacity building. We're talking about multiplication. How can we multiply people who can do this throughout the organization, rather than, again, being dependent on a few experts that can facilitate more conversational approaches to organizational life?
0: Can you share something with us about your experience, your organization's experience of change processes, the positives and the negatives, whether traditional or conversational? How have you seen that working out?
2: Yeah, and and that's an important question, uh, Kate, because again, if we study this, there are proponents of conversational leadership, and then those are more the traditional change management approaches, and then you find people who are perhaps more in the middle uh, between those two. And I think, you know, the traditional approaches, whether that's a reality or an assumption, but the, the predictability that he provides that people know well, how we're we going to do this process you know there's a research phase and and all of that and then you come up with a strategic plan and a rollout and measurement and, and all of that and so it gives people that sense of uh, they know what to expect the predictability and and that's often for some humans a, a need for them about right, safety and, yeah safety <laughs> yeah yeah I think also what I realize with organizations is some of our structures and systems and processes are so deeply embedded that to just have a conversational approach, it will always raise questions about, okay, what does this mean in terms of our structures our processes? How do we measure these things particularly? How do we evaluate this? It's a little bit more difficult with conversational approaches. So I think it gives people that sense of predictability, whereas the conversational approaches for me, some of the benefits is, is it enables wider participation. It enables creativity, greater creativity within an organization, innovation, you know, novelty, new ways of things coming up. And I think it must be Sushman who wrote about this, that one person makes a suggestion, somebody else, person B, hears the suggestion. And then they add to that, and it takes on a new form. And person C takes that suggestion, and it takes on a whole new form. Nobody, None of them on their own would have come up with this. But because the conversation takes place, there's novelty that emerges that you couldn't even say one person would have come up with this genius idea. Just the fact that it allows space for that. But I think there's also challenges with the conversational approach. It takes a lot of time. It can provoke resistance because you know, time is money, people want to plan, people want to know exactly. And so the uncertainty can provoke resistance, and how to navigate that. And just a willingness to sit with the unknown. I think those are some of the challenges for me with the conversational approaches.
0: I'm interested that you mentioned speed there. Claire raised an issue in our last episode about what do you do when things are urgent? Conversational approach takes time. And sometimes you just can't take the time to, to do that. And you have to make decisions urgently. I just wanted to ask for your perspective on that.
2: Of course, there are times that an urgent issue can mean life or death, that you need to make those decisions. But sometimes, who's urgent is it? How yeah. urgent is it really? Can we take a few more days? Or is it just because we're used to, this is the way it should be done? Who assesses, who determines how urgent something is? So one of the things that I've done in this includes just coming to terms with who I am and leadership and working in a context where there's a certain defined way of leadership that I'm not comfortable with, uh, but I've assimilated and done it that way many times or for a long time. I remember having to facilitate a conversation with our leadership team, and I know what our expectations at the end of those discussions are. Okay, now we need to summarize it. What are the key points? What are the action points? What is the timeline? When is this going to happen? That's the expectation. And I said to the team, grateful for all of their input. I've heard that. But I also want to be transparent that I'm not ready to actually come to that point of saying, OK, summarize this and next steps and and all of that. Because even as I said there, I recognize that there are voices in the meeting that I've not heard on this issue that I believe have something to say. And maybe it's because of the fact that we speak in English sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's a personality issue that some of us need a little bit more time to process. And then we just feel we need to make this rush decision. So I said, well, for one, I feel there's a few people, other people I want to engage with and get their input before I can actually make this decision. But at the same time, I can't keep them waiting indefinitely. So my arrangement with them was, I will come back to you in a week and have it summarized and give some kind of way forward rather than doing it now. And we leave it where, where it is right now. And once they heard me and explained this to them, I said, okay, no, we, we can live with that.
0: And even if something is urgent, we need to make sure we have the right people speaking into this. You know, We can often default to just getting into a little huddle of leaders when we have an urgent decision to be made quickly. And actually, we would benefit from taking a few more hours, maybe a few more days to reach out and, and ask people at different levels in the organization for their input on the decision. And then it will be a better decision as a result.
2: Yeah. It helps people to at least have some time frame. That's what I find. If you say to them, okay, we will come back to you in a certain period of time, then at least those who are yes. more linear, they, they have some marker, and then you can do the work that needs to be done and then get to that space. And if it requires more conversation, because sometimes it's not that urgent anymore, but at least they have some kind of ideas to when will we get feedback or take the next steps.
1: I like your balance there of maintaining forward movement, but also framing the time but also creating space for the right voices to speak into that. And I was fascinated by your comment about language being an issue there or people who need more time to think. I think there's a huge cultural component, actually. I I constantly see that. You've got often the loud, dominant Western voices who speak up first. And if you don't give it more time, those will be the only voices.
2: Conversational approaches have inherent biases built into them. And sometimes they're unconscious and we need to surface them in order to help us. So one of them would be the language bias uh, that we've talked about. The fact that we speak in English, even for somebody like me, English is my third language. Now I can express myself reasonably well in English, but English speakers don't see the mental <laughs> energy that it takes, yeah. you know, to be able to engage with them on a conversation around the table and having to quickly make a decision. And I, you global leaders, you're aware of this and Nielas, English is not your first language either. So
1: So Kate is the only one who doesn't have to think right now.
0: I've lived in other countries and I'm aware of the strain and the tiredness of speaking in another language that's not your own. One thing we've done is when we've had global staff conversations where we haven't all been in the same space and we've asked people to group in their organizational units, having conversations, some of those have taken place in French or Spanish or Korean and then we ask for the feedback and the feedback is usually in English we ask for all the groups to feed back to the leadership so that is one way around it having language specific groupings
1: yeah are there other aspects than language that you would like to bring out when you look at those cultural dynamics so language
2: would be one. And I like what you said, Kate. And I think, you know, just the issue of affinity group conversations. So even if you have a larger group, larger conversation, can you have affinity group conversations and, and how that is fed back, whether that affinity group being a language group, but it could be a gender issue as well. And so the other issue at play is the power issue. Mm. particularly in multicultural, diverse contexts, is we come in with an assumption of a very egalitarian worldview that everybody's equal because we're in the room. That's not true. We need to discern when we are together in these rooms, what are the power factors that's at play in this room that would affect how well we engage in this conversation. I just mentioned gender. In some places, being a man, I implicitly carry a certain weight in what I say. And so what does it mean for women in that room? How do we create space for them perhaps to have and have a conversation around their own table and say, this is how we feel. But one woman cannot necessarily speak up on behalf or, you know, so or generationally as well. One of the things that I've learned, even in these diverse conversations is there would be younger people there who feel that they can speak up because perhaps they even come from an egalitarian point of worldview. And so they've always been encouraging their families with their parents and so on. And this is how it's nurtured over years. But then there are young people who are in that room that just because of how they grew up that they would not speak up. So for me, just during those coffee breaks or lunch breaks to go and sit with them or take them aside or go for a walk and say, what do you make of this meeting? What do you sense and all of that? And I always get incredible insights from them. And I may challenge and encourage them and say, I'll create space and safety if you're in the room to actually come and say what you just said, depending on where the person is at. But just between a leader, when they feel affirmed, oh, this matters, oh, this is important. Oh, I can say it in the meeting. And so we build people up. So to be aware of the power dynamics in the room, and again, power dynamics can be diverse. Race is a power. And and I speak to many people in the majority world, being from a particular ethnic group can mean you have power in a group. So whether you're white or whether you're Black African, but from a particular ethnic background in a certain group, you can cover the issue of socioeconomic background and where we come from and money can be a power issue. So it's important to be aware of what are the power dynamics at play that determines who speaks up, this is the work that I'm really leaning into that as we create these inclusive conversations, uh, I believe there are certain conditions that need to be in place for truly inclusive conversations to take place. Because merely having diversity in a room doesn't mean it's an inclusive conversation.
0: No, not at all. In fact, one of the things we're doing in our organization right now is wanting to have a conversation around inclusion and belonging, but knowing if we open that up, we would probably mostly hear the Western voices. So we're starting out with what we're calling a listening project, deliberately going to our majority world colleagues and interviewing around 50, actually, and making sure we create space to hear their voices before we start the conversation. And I hope that that will give people the confidence to speak up when we have the whole staff conversation, but also we will then be able to bring those voices to the whole and sort of amplify them because of those power issues that you mentioned.
1: Yeah. I realize often how invisible power is to the person who actually has it because it's sort of the air you breathe. And to be aware of that takes time and effort. I was just at a elders meeting of our church and we talked about a very sensitive issue about a younger female person. The assumption was, well, we'll just ask her. It's like, well, do you realize that you go as the pastor as the man, as mm. the older person, <laughs> it's it's that sense of you're not even aware of how power plays into this conversation. I think it's really important to bring that out. And often across races, as you said, I mean, and, we, genders. and yeah. genders, we, we well,
0: definitely experience that. Exactly. We woman. just, we've yeah.
1: got to learn to see that as the ones who have it. And I think every leader has to wrestle with that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, absolutely. Then decenter the power. Acknowledge it, recognise it. And power is not the bad thing in itself. It's how power is used. Somebody once said, power needs to turn up trustworthy. Can we trust power for the good of all? It's a recognising exists, but then it. And And there's a number of other conditions that I think is critical for us to consider if we are to have really inclusive conversations.
1: We need to start closing off. Is there any final piece that you would like to mention an insight you would like to share with our listeners that you're like wow if only they retain that we're good
2: conversational leadership it opens up space for so much change in ourselves in interpersonal relationships in communities we are in a very unhealthy space virtual space that we're in where we see a lot of toxicity in terms of how we engage with one another we need to foster this and maybe just to the story Nellis i realize so often when i'm in these international diverse meetings that we talk about certain issues and yet when i walk out of the room and i find people from my affinity group whatever that might be then we talk about the meeting in the room And we say, did you hear this? Did you notice this? This should have been talked about. And somehow we don't feel the freedom to have these conversations in the room. And really those are the things that will actually, that's generative, that will take us forward, that will got us to grow. And so really to ask ourselves, why don't we feel we can have these conversations? And it goes back to these issues around power in the room, around psychological safety. How do we create psychological safe spaces for us to have these conversations? But also being brave, recognized, Sometimes we have to speak up. I love the, the work of Mary Frances Winters. If there's one resource I'd recommend is a book that she wrote around inclusive conversations. She talks about grace and forgiveness, that we are going to make mistakes. We are going to step on each other's toes. How do we extend that to each other? Facing our fear, our fragility. So we need to work on those things in order to really have interpersonal relationships and team and organizational conversations that really takes us forward is focus on that have the conversations but recognize that there needs to be certain things in place to really generate inclusive generative conversations
0: thank you reinhold i think we could talk for several more hours but we'll stop for now yeah i really appreciate you coming and sharing with us today particularly on this intersection between conversational processes and inclusivity which is so critical thank you for listening everyone We will be adding more resources and links to the show notes. So do check that out. And as always, the transcript will be there as well. Thank you, Reinhold. us, until next time.
2: Thank you.